Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are starting another themed month, everybody. Happy September. September. <laughs> Did you ever think we'd cover Saw? Uh, no. <laughs> this was on my firm we will not watch list at the very beginning of this podcast. But actually, this movie was not what I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be only torture scenes just back to back to back. But we have a nonlinear timeline. We got a mystery. We have a mystery on our hands. And I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. So I think I'm going to survive this month. And truthfully, Saw 2004, the first in the franchise, isn't too heavy on the ladies or lady representation. However, it does set the stage for one of the most twisted characters in the franchise, Amanda Young. She is quite the force, and we see the first of her in this movie. So our plan is to cover the first three, which is where she's a major player in the first three and then having a little bit of a surprise at the end with this new release coming out, which will be super exciting. Oh my god! Do you I'm remember? Sorry. Do you remember like <laughs> like how young you were when this first came out and like people freaking the fuck out about it? I just I don't think I participated in conversations about this movie. I think like if I heard it mentioned, I'd just like walk away. The only memories I have of horror movies when I was young are the movies that if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I had a knack for walking in the living room at the exact time I should not be walking into the living room <laughs> while my dad and my brother were watching scary movies. So unless I had a traumatizing experience, like I would completely avoid any conversation surrounding these movies because I was so fucking scared. And we were nine and 10 when yeah. this came out. Yeah. Mm hmm. Do you have memories about when this movie came out? Like, did you go to see it? How old were you when you first saw it? Like, were you in like the fourth grade? <laughs> like, were you that young? No, I don't think I watched it maybe until high school. But by the time I was in high school, I had like owned the first three and I kept up with the new releases. Not like midnight release, Twilight era or anything like that. But... <laughs> I was becoming a fan of the storyline, and we're going to find that there's a lot of narratives happening at once. And I remember being young and everyone talking about Saw and having like a morbid fascination of wanting to know what happened, but not being allowed to see the movie. And then once I was able to buy DVDs on my own, this is one of the first that I bought myself. Wow. So because it just was so different for its time, like I think it did spur a different kind of early 2000s horror, which some people don't like, some people think is trashy. I think it has a place based on what we were reacting to historically, which I do have some things on. But I think as a franchise, it's so much smarter than people give it credit for, especially if you do follow it through, through like the first six or seven movies, there are a lot of like overlapping timelines and storylines and characters that stay throughout. There's a lot of play with time, not necessarily time travel, but things happening simultaneously that you may not have realized initially. This is a franchise that's near and dear to my heart. I have these on in the background sometimes while I'm just <laughs> so like doing weird. things. I know. <laughs> like these and Final Destination are kind of like comfort movies where it's like, oh, let me just throw four on. I haven't seen that one in a while. Like <laughs> they're really not that serious for me, but I'm excited to be talking about it, especially because I nerded out over it as a youngster so much. 
So going into our ladies, we have Amanda Young, who has a small role in this movie, but becomes a pivotal character in the franchise. She's played by Shawnee Smith. She is known for other Saw franchise films, The Blob, Carnival of Souls, miniseries, 30 Days of Night, Dust to Dust, The Stand, and The Shining. She has main roles in sitcoms Becker and Anger Management. And something that I love about this franchise is there was a reality TV show attached to this. What? Because if you know me, I love reality competition Um, television. I do know that about you. Yes, I have a weird lexicon of things that I know a lot about, (laughs) and reality competition television is another one of them. And there was a show called Scream Queens, not Ryan Murphy's Scream Queens with Emma Roberts, but it was a VH1 reality competition television show called Scream Queens, where 10 to 12 aspiring actresses competed in challenges, like acting challenges specific to horror movie tropes to win a guest-starring role in an upcoming Saw sequel. This is unearthing some kind of memory, like watching advertisements or something. Yes. So there was two seasons of it, and there was winners of two seasons, and they would go on to win small roles in Saw 6 and Saw 7 3D. (laughs) 3D! Yes. So... (laughs) Shawnee Smith was the host of season one of Scream Queens. And I forgot that she was because I know more about the second season and the winner of Saw 3D than I do about the first season. But it's just like this campy, very ANTM adjacent show where these actresses are like taking acting lessons with this acting coach and learning how to scream and learning how to cry on command and doing all of these challenges, like pretending to be possessed, pretending to be demons, pretending to be doing final girl circuits. Like that was like a final challenge in this movie was like running a final girl circuit with all of like hitting your marks and doing all that kind of stuff. It was so nerdy and I was so into it. need to know where this is streaming because this would be like a really fun thing to watch especially because we're really on the cusp of spooky season yeah i don't know if it exists anywhere or where it would but yeah the show was scream queens and again not the one with emma roberts that's a (laughs) ahs adjacent show but scream queens vh1 the reality competition television show so shawnee smith was a host of that so i had to throw that context in here (laughs) because i loved that show and it was so fun for me and i'm so happy to talk about it then we have detective carrie she is played by dina meyer she is in other solid franchise films lots of tv roles including beverly hills 90210 birds of prey and point pleasant We have Allison, who is played by Monica Potter. She is in a remake of The Last House on the Left, the 2009 remake, and TV series Boston Legal, Parenthood, and Goliath. And then we have Diana, who is played by Mackenzie Vega. She's known for her TV work in The Good Wife and 13 Reasons Why. Wait, Diana, is she the little girl? Yes. Wait, she's in 13 Reasons Why? It's like a guest role. I, she's in like three episodes. Her name's Sarah or something. Okay. I, don't I didn't know. watch I only watched the, the first sh- season. Exactly. So I, I didn't watch it all the way through, but she has like a guest starring role in oh, that okay, show. Cool. Going into some pre-plot trivia, this is directed by James Wan. James Wan is known for The Conjuring franchise, The Insidious franchise, The Annabelle franchise, movies Dead Silence, Malignant, Megan, and he is an executive producer on all future Saw sequels. 
And the screenplay is by Lee Whannell. We know Lee Whannell from Invisible Man, Upgrade. He is the writer and specs on the Insidious franchise films. And he is also an executive producer on all Saw franchise sequels. The filmmaking duo met in film school and co-wrote the film, which began as a short film, retroactively referred to as Saw.5. Wait, I love that! Which Juan and Winnell shot together in 2003 to pitch the studios, which led to the feature film version in 2004, and this is both of their debut feature film works. Anytime I read a fact like that, I'm like, oh my god, that's so exciting for them. I know. (laughs) You can like feel the exciting energy of that chain of events. Especially because we were talking about this right before. They're both Australian, so they tried shopping it around in Australia, and they ended up going to LA, and that's Mm. where Lionsgate ended up getting it. The movie was inspired by nightmares they had as kids, and also their lack of budget. The plot was built around them only being able to afford shooting in a singular room, hence why in the movie there are no exterior shots seen. If you watch this movie, there are no shots of them being outside ever. They're always in rooms. (laughs) And even like, I don't know if you noticed the car chase scene, how fucking comical it is. It's because they couldn't fucking afford to shoot outside. Wow. That is amazing. I love how they were like, here's what we need to do. And they did it. So Shawnee Smith, who is not a horror fan, initially refused the role of Amanda Young, describing the script as horrific. However, after watching the short, she agreed to the role, which was the part that Winnell portrayed in the short, which is the reverse bear trap. So Lee Winnell was actually the person in the reverse bear trap in Saw.5. Oh. And that scene is what was used to get them funding, even though they only had a budget of about a million dollars to make the feature film. Huh. So James Wan offhandedly suggested Smith to his casting director when he asked who he wanted to play Amanda as he had a crush on Shawnee Smith since his teenage years and was surprised when his casting director secured her in the role. Cute! So sweet. So the film ended up grossing $55 million in America and $48 million in other countries, totaling in $103 million worldwide. This was over $100 million more than the production budget, which was $1 million. This led to studios greenlighting the sequel, Saw 2, and later the rest of the Saw franchise. Saw had a new movie coming out every October consistently for like five or six years. I feel like I remember that. Yes. Because I remember being like, another one? Yes. Or like going to see like Hairspray in movie theaters with my grandma and there was like a trailer in there for Saw 7 and I was like, oh my god, just Every October for years there was a new Saw movie coming out. They were pumping them out. So like it doesn't surprise me that especially since they came out in October, Halloween releases, they had that primetime spot. I feel a little bit excited to be embarking on this journey. I did not anticipate being excited, but I guess having one film down and all of this cool context, I feel kind of amped up right now. So going into some historical context, this comes from an article, What the Saw Series Reveals About 2000s Horror by Victoria Kester. And she writes, media and art in general, but horror film trends specifically can almost always be tied to a historical event or societal issue. The single defining moment of not only America, but the world in the early 2000s, the era of the original Saw series was the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in New York City. Going into detail about the attack is absolutely not necessary, as it's pretty much public knowledge at this point, but the event really did change how the world functioned. It also induced a lot of real, visceral fear. The public was very scared of subsequent terrorist attacks, and more than ever, it felt like no one could truly be trusted. It was a weird era to be alive, as it felt like the whole world changed overnight. 
Some horror and film experts believe that, though maybe not explicitly so, the fear of other people created by 9-11 is what set the tone for the themes of films like Saul in that era. The series lacks any supernatural elements whatsoever. All of the villains are everyday people who have chosen to hurt others. And in a way, the games depicted in the series are comparable to terrorist attacks. Another huge historical event that came out of 9-11 was the Iraq War. This was a massive event that lasted almost the entirety of the 2000s and was highly controversial. It began in 2003, a year before the first Saw came out. The Iraq War was often characterized by the torture and war crimes committed toward the beginning of it. America was originally thought by most of the Western world to be the good guys in this situation, as it was to be a retaliation for the terrorism committed on 9-11. The torture scene in Saw, and the theme of paying for sins in a torturous way, mimics these themes a lot. Wow, yeah. I know that we've talked before about the impact of 9-11 on the horror genre, especially like even early on in our like History of Women's Fears episodes, like way back. But I didn't even think about like the Iraq war and the themes here of like war crimes and how they mirror like these games in this movie. That's really interesting and troubling. And also the lack of supernatural events too. I mean, it seems like even in films that are really cut and dry, there's always some kind of like supernatural element there. But yeah, there's literally nothing here. It's just people making choices. Yeah, even if you were to look at Halloween or Friday the 13th, there's always some fantastical element where, yes, it's a man behind a mask, but this dude can get resurrected. So there has to be some element of the supernatural at play, even if it is just a man behind a mask, where I feel like this franchise commits that, no, people will do this to each other and to ourselves. Like, that's so interesting seeing that James Wan goes on to create the Insidious universe, the Conjuring universe, the Annabelle universe, which is so reliant on the supernatural that the most fundamental thing that he could think of as his first film, whether it be because of budget constraints or whatever reason, was just there's two people in the room with a dead guy and we need to make it last an hour. How can we make it so this is all somebody's fault? We're about to tell you how he did it. Yeah. (laughs) So let's get into it. Okay. So that opening scene, that's exactly where we start. The camera focuses on one guy. He is submerged in water, suddenly becomes conscious. In the scrambling he's doing to get out of this water, we see that he's in a bathtub. He unplugs the cork with his scrambling. I guess it's not a cork. It's like a stopper. But it's an old bathtub, so it's like one of those stoppers on a chain. And the water starts to drain. We see that there's almost looks like a keychain flashlight that goes down the drain, extinguishes all sources of light in the room. It's dark in the room. He doesn't know where he is. He yells out for help. And somebody answers. So we know that he's not alone. The second guy tries to find a light switch. He finally gets the room lights on. And we see immediately that there are two men in a room chained on like opposite sides. And there is a dead man in the center who, based on the revolver that he's holding in his hand, has killed himself who knows how long before these men become conscious here. The first man is panicking, he's pulling out his chains, he's vomiting, while the other man on the other side of the room is a lot more composed, is trying to get him to calm down, asking if he's hurt, and he says he's a doctor. So they start comparing stories, neither of them have memory on how they got there, and they begin introducing themselves. The first man that we saw from the bathtub, his name is Adam, he introduces himself as Lawrence Gordon, he's a surgeon, 
Gordon is like, we have to figure out what whoever put us here wants. They note that there is a clock in the room and that clock is new. It does not match the wear and grime that the rest of the bathroom has. So whoever put them there wants them to know what time it is. And as Gordon tries pushing a door behind him open, Adam finds a note and a tape in his pocket. Gordon has one too. They both say, play me. But Gordon also has a small key and a bullet with his little package that is in his pocket. So Gordon tries the little key into his ankle lock. It doesn't work. He tosses it over to Adam. Adam tries the key. It doesn't work either. But then they notice that the dead man in the center of the room has a tape recorder in his opposite hand. So Adam uses the bathtub stopper to grab the tape recorder, pull it to him, and play his tape. And Adam's tape urges him to survive. There's some kind of man with a gruff voice speaking, saying Adam doesn't appreciate being alive. Apparently, Adam has not shown a strong will to live in his past. Yeah, and a pivotal line in his tape is, up until now, you simply sat in the shadows watching others live out their lives. And that has some hints as to what will be revealed later. So then Gordon throws Adam his tape to play. His is telling him it's a wake-up call every day of your working life. You give people the news that they're going to die soon. Now you will be the cause of death. Your aim in this game is to kill Adam. You have until six o'clock to do it. I guess the man starts referencing the dead man on the floor. When there's that much poison in your blood, the only thing left to do is shoot yourself. There are ways to win this all around you. X marks the spot for the treasure. If you do not kill Adam by six, then Allison and Diana will die and you will be left in this room to rot. Let the game begin. Damn. Okay. (laughs) So we don't know who Allison and Diana are yet, but obviously somebody very important to Dr. Gordon. And Dr. Gordon is like surprisingly kind of keeping his shit together right now. Mm -hmm. And he decides that he's going to play the tape back a couple times, try to see if he can get any hints out of it. Apparently X marks the spot. What does that even mean? And when he plays the tape back, he hears the phrase, follow your heart, quietly whispered at the very end of the tape. So immediately the men start looking around the room to see if they can find anything that would match that quote. And they see a heart written in like, Shit. It looks like a heart written in shit on like the toilet tank. So Adam is closest and he reaches in this like brown old toilet water and finds nothing. Then <laughs> Gordon is like checking the tank. So he lifts the lid off the tank and finds a plastic bag in there. So he picks up the plastic bag, opens it up and finds two hand saws inside. And then he chucks the rest of the bag in the bathtub that he originally emerged from. He tosses one of the saws to Gordon and both of them try to saw through their chains. But Adam, in his zealousness, accidentally breaks the saw because it's just no match for the metal chains. And that makes Gordon put together the pieces that we're not using these saws to get the chain off. These saws are to saw our limbs off. Adam, in his frustration, throws the saw and breaks a mirror on the other side of the room. And Gordon says, I think I know who done this to us. So Gordon goes on to talk about a man the police haven't caught yet, but that he was a suspect for his crimes. We get a scene change to three officers, Singh, Carrie, and Tap, investigating a man who died in a trap, which was a cage full of barbed wire. They find a tape on the scene and the tape reveals that the victim's name is Paul and he is a man who self-harmed 
and Jigsaw put him in a trap that if he wanted to die, he would have to stay where he is, but if he wanted to live, he would have to cut himself again. And if he did not get out in two hours, the door to the room would lock and the room would become his tomb. There was a dead body on the scene, so Paul did not make it out of his trap. And Tap notices that a jigsaw piece is carved out of his flesh, showing a signature for this killer. Gordon goes on to say that that piece of evidence gave him the moniker of the jigsaw killer, although technically he's not really a murderer. He didn't kill anyone. He just finds ways for victims to kill themselves. So still in the flashback, we get an image of Dr. Gordon at work. He's in a room. There's a patient in the room with terminal brain cancer. And a man, like one of the hospital workers, comes on the scene and says that this man's name is John Kramer, the guy in the bed. But we can see that Dr. Gordon hasn't been referring to this man by his name. He seems to have like a room full of maybe doctors in training, like he's doing some teaching, but he's not referring to his patient by name. But he's kind of doing his like teacher doctor thing when Detective Tap and Detective Singh come on the scene and pull Gordon out and let him know that they found his pen light at the scene of the crime, which directly links him to this jigsaw killer. Then we get a scene with Gordon talking to his lawyer, where it's implied that no, he's not the killer, but he has an airtight alibi because he was likely cheating on his wife, which we do find out later is confirmed. But it seems like he was totally with another woman, but the alibi is enough to clear him. Yes, he said he was visiting someone and it wasn't a patient. And I was like, bad boy. (laughs) Oh my god. And this fucking guy... Oh, I forget his name, but he's in Black Christmas, and he was also in The Princess Bride as, like, heartthrob. He's not a heartthrob in this. No, he is, like, kind of a little bitch. Yeah. Well, he's... Right now, like, at least in the present timeline, like, in the bathroom, he does a good job keeping composure, but maybe, spoiler, it's going to become a lot more difficult for him to do that. So although his alibi is airtight, Detective Singh wants him to listen to the testimony of one of the only victims that survived a trap to see if it'll make Gordon remember anything. So it's clear that the police, even though they've cleared him, still suspect him of something. And this is where we are introduced to Amanda Young. So Amanda is sitting in the room and starts shakenly recounting her experience. There are cuts on her mouth and cheeks, and she talks about waking up in a trap, and she has a device on her head that covers her entire skull, essentially, and it is the reverse bear trap, baby. This is going to be a trap that comes back later in the franchise. It is iconic. And as she wakes up and is trying to figure out, like, what the fuck is going on, a TV next to her turns on, and we meet Billy. (laughs) His name is Billy. Not Billy. Billy the puppet. Why did they name this freaking puppet Billy? Ask James Wan. He's never referred to as Billy in the franchise, fun fact, but he's known as Billy just because that's what James Wan referred to him Uh, as on set. Okay, I was gonna say, I was like, I do not remember this puppet having a name. Because he doesn't. He never has a name. He's just kind of a mouthpiece for Jigsaw, but we know him as Billy. I think he's, as far as like doll slash puppets go, I think he's creepier than Annabelle. Oh yeah. He's so scary. He's got the spirals on his cheeks and he's got the long hair. (laughs) Those cheekbones. Get some highlighter on those. He has his little tricycle. (laughs) He can move. Oh yeah, the tricycle. The doll says, hello, Amanda, you don't know me, but I know you. I want to play a game. Obviously iconic history. 
Here's what happens if you lose. The device you are wearing is hooked to your upper and lower jaws. When the timer in the back goes off, your mouth will be permanently ripped open. Think of it like a reverse bear trap. And there is a demonstration being done on a dummy. The timer goes off and it rips the dummy's head apart, essentially. He goes on to say, there's only one key to open the device and it's in the stomach of your dead cellmate. Better hurry up, live or die, make your choice. So we see Amanda struggling out of her chair restraints and as she stands up, there's like a rip cord that is attached to the timer and as she stands, that's when the timer starts. So she sees a body on the ground with a question mark on his stomach and a knife next to him and we see that he begins to wake up. He's not moving, he appears to be paralyzed, but Amanda uses, it's not even a knife, it's like a 10 blade, like it's like a surgical device, this knife isn't even that big. Yeah, like it's not even very good for like cutting your fruit. No, (laughs) no, paring knives do better. But Amanda uses the knife to stab him in the stomach repeatedly, sort through his intestines, get the key, and gets herself out with a moment to spare. She cries and screams as Billy rolls in on his bike, (laughs) riding his little tricycle, and begins talking and says, congratulations, you are still alive. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive, but not you, not anymore. And then Tap does some weird victim-blaming questioning. I'm like, what is this line of questioning? What trauma-informed school did you go to? Because it's none. (laughs) He's like, do you think Jigsaw picked you because you're a drug addict? Do you feel grateful for what he did to you? Like, what the fuck? Shut the fuck up, Tap. Amanda weakly says, he helped me. Yeah. I mean, I guess Jigsaw's weird psychology worked on her. Obviously, because I know that we're going to be seeing her again in the other movies. Oh, yeah. Wackadoodle time. Wackadoodle Wackadoodle time. time. (laughs) I have a feeling I can't even, like, fully comprehend what's going to happen. Oh, no, she's nutty. I'm scared. She's amazing, but nutty. (laughs) So back to the dilapidated bathroom, Adam does not react well to this recounting by Dr. Gordon about this case and what this all could mean. He threatens Gordon with the shard of glass from before that had broken off when he threw his saw and realizes as he holds it that it's, what's it, like a two-way mirror? A two-way mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one side looks like a mirror, but the other side you can see through, meaning that as Adam throws things to break the glass further... There's a camera on the other side watching and recording their every move. We kind of get a POV shot of a person on the other side of that camera watching live from the comfort of a super early 2000s like dark leather study. So Gordon then tries to focus on planning some kind of escape, but Adam reminds him of his wife and daughter's lives being on the line. So I guess this is where we find out that Diana and Allison are his daughter and wife, respectively. Yeah, because he's looking at photos in his wallet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Gordon's like, I can't think of the last thing I said to my daughter. And then we get thrown into a flashback. Yes, another flashback. And look, I kind of love the commitment. I have to say, like, we've done movies before with, like, a nonlinear storyline. But this is, like, really committed to the nonlinear storyline, which I kind of love. I just, I have to say. I mean, sometimes they <laughs> embed a flashback in a flashback, though. Where yeah. Where it's, like, Amanda is in a flashback and Gordon's watching her in that flashback. But then we get a flashback of Amanda's assault from Jigsaw, which yeah. is another flashback. And it's, like, we get flashbackception a lot of the time. And I love it. <laughs> so in this specific flashback, after Gordon says out loud he doesn't remember the last thing he says to his daughter, 
we get a shot of a sleeping girl in her room who wakes up to the sound of a wind chime. She feels the presence of somebody in her room. So she goes to get her mother telling her that there's a man in her room. Her mother, Allison, then goes to summon Gordon to check on Diana's bedroom, put her back to sleep and make sure she's okay. And Gordon seems to do this begrudgingly. Like he's focusing on other things, very career driven kind of person, or who knows, maybe he's doing something shady because we know at this point he's having an affair. So he goes, tucks Diana in, makes sure nobody else is in her room and leaves. But then in the hallway outside of Diana's room, Allison confronts him and is like, you suck. You suck. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I heard you stumble, but only because I can't imagine a seven-year-old being named Diana. Like, like their names feel like they should be switched. Like Allison's the wife and Diana's the little girl. But it's like having a child... (laughs) named like Theodore or something like that or like just some high elevated name where it's like a child doesn't have this name only a full-grown adult has this name I have a theory that Diana is gonna come back in style because of Princess Diana you think so yeah I think Princess Diana has really come back into the conversation so I think the name Diana will come back into conversation we'll revisit this (laughs) I have a theory it's a working theory (laughs) um right into (laughs) thebump.com yes I will become an editor on (laughs) (laughs) thebump.com Excellent. So it is now 1 p.m.-ish. We are watching the time on the clock, and Gordon throws his wallet to Adam to show him pictures of Diana, his daughter. Adam's like, where's your wife? And he's like, oh, check the photo behind the one of my daughter, which is just showing how great this marriage is. But also, like, his wife is so attractive. Yes. Like, it reminds me of this TikTok trend right now of people, like, making videos of, like, the husband, the wife, and then who he cheated with. Right. Which we were just having a conversation about Natalie Portman and her husband cheating on her and how, like, that happened right when we put out our Black Swan episode and we're like, goo goo gaga over like how they met and they're like awesome meet cute oh my gosh yeah so like this is giving that trend like he cheats on her but she's from everything we see in this movie like a hot and amazing mother it's like what do you want (laughs) the mistress ain't ugly but no, it's not his wife. No, like yeah. the mistress is also like very hot and very capable. She's also very young. Okay, yes. so this guy clearly is playing into that position of power, which fucking sucks. But his wife is amazing too. Both of these women are amazing. It's his fault. Adam goes to look behind the photo that Gordon told him to and finds a Polaroid of Allison and Diana tied up. Ugh. It says, X marks the spot. Sometimes you see more with your eyes shut. Adam's like, oh, the photo that you told me about isn't here and throws his wallet back, keeping the Polaroid, trying to not freak Gordon out because obviously that would be very distressing to see. So then we are thrust back into the flashback where Gordon's wife, Allison, kicks him out of the house. Essentially, she just senses his apathy. She's like, if you want to leave, just fucking leave. So he does. But this was right after Gordon had just told his daughter, I'm not going anywhere. So he leaves to go later, we'll find out, meet up with his mistress. But right after he leaves, Diana is back in her room and she is then ambushed by some guy, which we are assuming to be fucking Jigsaw. He attacks Diana, who screams, brings Allison into the room, and she's the one that sees this, like, blanketed man, Mm -hmm. ties them up, and then he is threatening to kill them and uses a stethoscope to hear their heart rates increasing as they're becoming more fearful, correct? Yeah, because he's holding guns to their heads. Yes. Okay, the guns. 
Anyway, yeah, so mean-spirited, which is also, like, is he doing that to get a feel for if they're actually scared? Like, I don't know why he's doing that. Yeah, I mean, what we find out about him later on is like, oh, he had to do this. But at the same time, it's like he's getting a little bit of a too sick pleasure out of it for somebody who was framed. Because we find out that this man is Zepp who was the orderly that was telling Gordon to be more empathetic to his patients. And we know that because he opens the curtains to look outside and we see light on his face. Mm -hmm. And if you're eagle-eyed, you saw him and his face in a previous scene. So you're like, okay, like you're giving away the lead. This is Zep. Zep is Jigsaw. But somebody else is also eagle-eyed because right when Zep looks out the curtains, there is a picture snapped of him from the apartment across the way. And we see that it is Detective Tap in a little apartment across the street from Gordon's place. This is like a red string detective moment. It's like oh, yeah. all these pictures and articles hung up on the wall. He's set up with this camera with a zoom in lens. And he starts talking out loud about like, I got you. I knew it had something to do with you. Or at least Gordon's house, but also wondering out loud why this guy is in Gordon's house. So we, we know that Tap is essentially watching and knows that something is amiss right now, but is at least present and on guard. So we get a flashback to Tap dropping Gordon off at his home after hearing Amanda's testimony. Tap pretty much makes it clear that I still don't fucking trust you. We later see Tap studying Amanda's jigsaw tape. Singh is there with him and he notices something on the tape. A graffiti mark on the wall denoting a very specific neighborhood of the city they're in. And then they end up hearing a fire alarm in the back of the audio. So they cross-reference fire alarms being called in in that block radius in the last two weeks, and they find a match. So Tap and Sing go to a warehouse. They break in and find a full-on lair. Mm-hmm. There's miniatures of traps, Billy the Puppet, a pig <laughs> mask, and an alive man uh-huh. under a blanket. They hear an elevator going off, and Tap convinces Sing to hide so they can see who he is and what he'll do. A man in a black hood gets off the elevator and uncovers the man under the blanket and says that he is a test subject for something bigger than himself. Tap and Singh have heard enough. They jump out, hold him up, but then Jigsaw turns the trap on. So Singh tries to free the man in the trap while Tap holds Jigsaw up, calls him a sick motherfucker or something. (laughs) Yeah, he does. And Jigsaw says, I am sick. Sick of people who don't appreciate their lives. Sick of people scoffing at the suffering of others. Sick of it all. Singh goes to shoot at the trap to stop it, and the noise distracts Tap enough where Jigsaw slits Tap's throat and runs off. Singh ends up abandoning ship. We never learn what happens to this man, no? This man in the trap? I thought Singh, like, found the right key. No, he didn't find the key because what ends up happening is Jigsaw's like, oh, there's a key in that box and it's a whole fucking key ring full of a bunch of keys. But then Singh shoots the trap so that it stops moving or something. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So I guess the man maybe was saved because he stopped the trap. But that noise is what distracted Tap to where he got his throat slit and then Jigsaw ran away. So Singh goes, chases after him while Tap is like gurgling and being useless. As Singh is going after him with a gun, he seemingly shoots him down. But as he goes down the hallway to confirm, Singh triggers a tripwire where he is shot in the head Mm. by a gun that's positioned right above him. Jigsaw stands and runs off and Tap sees Singh's body and screams in anguish. 
So that's when we cut back to the present and see Tap again with his wild apartment set up. We see he has a healed scar on his neck. And now we understand why he has this wild drive to catch the killer, because he wants to not only find this killer for the people he's already killed, but avenge his good friend and partner, Singh. And then we're back to the bathroom. Yes, the couple is bickering. <laughs> the couple is bickering. But Gordon, ever the grounding force for Adam, it seems, is like, we need to do some more thinking. We need to focus on escaping. At this point, Adam then urges Gordon to turn the lights off, which Gordon is like, why would I do that? But Adam, we know, had found that Polaroid that says sometimes you can see more with the lights off. So Gordon gives in, turns off the lights, because if you remember, he's the one closest to the light switch, and they see an X illuminated on the wall over these tiles. They turn the lights back on, Gordon bursts through the tiles and finds a lockbox and remembers that little key that had been previously found in his little pouch. They use the key, unlock it, and they find a cell phone and two cigarettes. Well, I love like the cell phone and Adam's like, wow, man's best invention. And then he finds the cigarettes and he's like, wow, man's second best invention. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he is Jones in for a cigarette. He says, give me that sweet cancer, <laughs> which will become kind of important later. So then Gordon also has a note in the lockbox that says, note that the cigarettes are harmless, I promise. Smoking is only poisonous when it is done in bloodshed. Think about this. You don't need a gun to kill Adam knowing that Gordon's mission is to kill Adam before 6 p.m. So Gordon tries to use the phone, but figures out that the phone can only receive calls and not make them. And he's like, this has happened before. And he remembers being captured in a parking garage by someone in a pig mask after he was trying to make a call. So Gordon questions Adam on how he knew to turn off the lights. They argue, and Adam relents and ends up showing him the Polaroid of his wife and daughter, where he cries, loses his composure, and screams at whoever's holding them captive that he's going to fucking kill them. And he's obviously very upset as to what he saw. But through this upset moment, he has an epiphany. He remembers in the original tape recording that the voice said the man in the center of the room had poison in his blood. Like when you have that much poison in your blood, the only thing left to do is kill yourself. So he stealthily dips the end of one of the cigarettes in the blood that is pooled on the floor, seemingly to poison the cigarette so that when he tosses it to Adam and Adam smokes it, he will die. But then he turns off the lights and we can see like a POV shot of the person watching, like confused as to why those lights would turn off again. We see when the lights turn back on that Gordon has taken the non-blood dip cigarette to throw to Adam and then Adam smokes it and very dramatically and poorly presents <laughs> to die on the floor. So after this scene, Gordon yells to Jigsaw to let him out. He's done what he asked him to do. <laughs> but then Jigsaw electrocutes Adam through the chain that's around his ankle. And of course, Adam reacts to that very severely because he was just electrocuted. And seeing that he is still alive, their plan is foiled to fake Jigsaw out. But Adam now remembers how he got there. So we get a flashback to him walking home to a shitty apartment, listening to a Walkman, and <laughs> he goes into his dark room to develop photos, and the photos are of Gordon. Uh-huh. Later, we see Adam waking up in his dark room, the power's out, his flashlight doesn't work, he's disoriented, he's hearing some noises. This reminded me of, what is it, You're Next, where he uses the camera flash as his light to search his apartment. Yeah. And we hear the classic Billy laugh. He sees the puppet there. Ew. 
He fucking annihilates Billy with a baseball bat, but ends up being attacked by somebody in a pig mask, and that's how he got into the room. Gordon ends up getting a phone call on the cell phone, and it's Diana crying, the bad man from my room is here, he has us tied up, and he has a gun, please come home. So then the person who's holding them captive hands the phone to Allie, where she says, don't believe Adam's lies, he knows you, and he has known all about you before today. And the call ends. So, of course, Gordon is distraught. The call has just been cut between his wife, his daughter, and him. He doesn't know what happened to them. And he starts yelling at Adam to tell him what the fuck is going on, where essentially Adam then admits that he was paid to spy on Gordon. And that's why we saw pictures of Gordon in his dark room. He says he knows about Gordon's affair with one of his medical students, who he had visited the night he was abducted. Adam tosses over pictures to prove that he knows about the affair. He had seen them earlier because they were in the same bag as the handsaws that he had tossed to the side. So Gordon asks Adam who was paying him. And through Adam's description, they realize it's Detective Tapp, who has since been discharged from the force for having some kind of mental breakdown after the death of his partner. And through it all, this is astounding to me, Gordon, like, still denies having an affair. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I never cheated on her. I was like, dude, you need to, like, you got to be focusing on other things. He just will not admit it. And then Adam finds in the photo bundle a picture of Zepp, the guy we know is holding Diana and Allison hostage. He shows it to Gordon and Gordon identifies him as the hospital orderly. And then this is who they are sure must be their captor as well. This must be Jigsaw. Just then, as they make this epiphany, they look at the clock and realize it has just turned six and that time is out. We see Zepp on the other end of things, see that it is six o'clock and Gordon has still not killed Adam. So he moves in to murder Allie and Diana. Meanwhile, Allie has started the process of freeing herself and pretends to still be trapped when Zepp says that Gordon's time is up and he has to do what he has to do. She has to be the one to tell him that he failed. So they call Gordon and Allie says, you failed and uses that as an opportunity to attack Zepp, get the gun and hold him up. And this turns into a fight between Zepp and Allie for the gun. The gun starts going off. Tap notices the gunfire and's like, I'm ready to go. Loads his gun, ready to assist. More gunshots go off as they continue fighting. Allie ends up stabbing Zep with some scissors and Tap breaks in. They exchange gunfire. They tussle. Zep ends up being able to get away from Tap, but Tap chases him. Yeah, Tap chases him. And this is the car scene, right? It's like a wild car chase scene. Really, really bad car chase montage is what I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And then they end up like in the sewers and then it seems like Tap is going to get to Zep, but Zep ultimately turns and shoots Tap in the chest and he is killed. I did not expect that. No, I didn't expect Tap to die that quickly. Especially because Tap is played by Danny Glover, who's like a big actor. Yeah. So I just did not see that coming. But alas, we lose Detective Tap and Zep is left standing. Meanwhile, of course, Gordon has lost touch over the cell phone and is very upset. The last thing he had heard was screaming and gunshots and is assuming the worst. I hated this, though. 
Because he had thrown the phone out of his reach in frustration, Uh, mm -hmm. and then the phone begins ringing again, Mm -hmm. and he can't reach it. And he's reaching, and he's reaching, and he can't reach it. And the man is wearing a long-sleeve button-up shirt, and he had told Adam, use your shirt earlier to Mm -hmm. get the fucking tape recorder, and he's now not using his shirt. You think he's about to because he's just so enraged and frustrated. He begins taking off his shirt. I'm like, oh, okay, you're being smart. And then, no, instead he's using the shirt as a tourniquet. Use it to get the fucking phone. And what is he using the tourniquet for? To saw his foot off. (laughs) (laughs) To saw his foot off. And I'm like, just get the phone. My guy, I know that it's tough right now. I know that it's tough. Especially because (laughs) on the other end of the phone is Allie and Diana who have run to a neighbor's house and they are safe. Yeah. So he has no reason to kill Adam at this point because he knows his wife and daughter are safe. Which he then tries to do after he saws off his foot. (laughs) (laughs) If that, I I don't know. Like, I feel like sawing off your foot would be a sobering experience where you'd be like, wow, I need a break. But he's not. He's still on a rampage. He grabs the revolver from the floor out of the hand of the dead man and then, yes, shoots Adam in the chest. He didn't have to do it. I know. It's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. So the door opens behind Gordon and Zepp is there. Gordon weakly is like, I'm going to fucking kill you. But like, (laughs) he's like losing a lot of blood and is very pale and dying. Zepp walks over to Adam and kicks him to see if he's dead. He doesn't move. Zepp said it's too late, points the gun at Gordon, but Adam wakes up, takes Zepp down by surprise, wrestles the gun away, and bludgeons Zepp to death with the toilet lid. I love that. It was a great comeback. Yes. We have like a tearful moment between Adam and Gordon where Gordon is like, I have to go find help. Adam's like, don't leave. But he ends up leaving to go find help. So Adam is left alone in the bathroom. He searches Zepp's body and finds another tape, like a tape in a tape recorder, plays it. And that's when he realizes that Zepp was just another victim of the Jigsaw murderer. So they did not kill the Jigsaw murderer like they thought. And right when he makes this discovery... The corpse in the middle of the fucking (laughs) room slowly starts to stand up and take off some prosthetic headpiece that looked like a bullet wound and reveal himself to be a perfectly alive man who introduces himself as... John Kramer, the man from the hospital room before, who Zepp fucking spoke up for, (laughs) right? um, but is now here and the real jigsaw killer. He tells Adam that the key to his ankle chain was in the bathtub submerged with him the whole time, but went down the drain when Adam woke up and pulled the plug. It drained with the water. He's doing these things because other people are so ungrateful for their lives. And he himself has terminal cancer and is sick of, I wrote, sick of bitches being ungrateful. Pretty much. (laughs) Adam attempts to shoot John with the gun, but John electrically shocks him through the chain once again and then exits the bathroom, seals the door, and seemingly leaves Adam to die there. And that's the movie. What the fuck? I love the idea that, like, the guy who looked dead in the middle of the room was just, like, electrocuting them the whole time. Yeah, just, like, pushing just a like, button and yeah. be like, hee <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you guys didn't notice? I was alive the whole time. Let's do a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving into some post-plot stuff. Lee Winnell came up with the idea of giving John Kramer a brain tumor while spending time in a neurology ward for anxiety and headaches. He said undergoing numerous tests and expecting bad news made him reflect on his own mortality. He used this experience in creating a character who only had a few years left to live. Okay. 
And we're going to learn a lot more about John Kramer's God complex later on, because that's his whole thing is he punishes people who don't appreciate their lives. But we're going to like take a little walk through what his parameters are and they get a little bit more skewed as you go on. Another fun fact, Tobin Bell, who plays John Kramer, laid face down for all of the scenes set in the bathroom. No dummy was used. So every day he just sat and laid there. I kind of love that. I bet his neck really hurt. I bet so too. I mean, it was filmed over 18 days. I know that. I don't know that all 18 days were spent in the bathroom, but like just laying there on that cold ass tile floor. The Saw franchise obviously grew to be a huge success. It spawned nine sequels, the most recent of which, Saw X, is coming out in October. So I just wanted to run through Jigsaw's motivations for putting all of his people in their traps. So for Dr. Gordon, Dr. Gordon is an oncologist and delivered the news of John's cancer, effectively giving him a death sentence. He didn't appreciate his own family, something we learned that John desperately wants in later films, by having an affair. Oh, I know that because I've seen the sequels. We're going to find that out together. But something that John Kramer desperately wants is like a wife and a child, all those types of things. And Dr. Gordon was unappreciative of both of them by having an extramarital affair. And we obviously saw in the beginning, Dr. Gordon was not necessarily treating his patients with compassion. They're like, the patient has an inoperable brain tumor and it's terminal, but not treating a human like a human being. Yeah, but then I'm curious about like why he went after Zepp. Right. So Zepp has been like the most confusing one. Apparently, there are some context taken out of the movie, but it might be in a director's cut where it showed more evidence of Zepp being jealous of the doctors that he worked with because he did not have the ambition to become a doctor himself. So him being an orderly in a hospital was a lack of discipline and he didn't appreciate the position that he did have. But that is not made apparent in the feature film release of the movie ended up getting taken out. He spoke up on John's behalf and had positive weight, but didn't realize the positive weight he could have yeah. in that position. But still, meh, yeah, I mean, it's giving flawed a little it's bit. Giving, you can't just kill people, <laughs> but it's but it's that's the thing. That's what it builds upon. Is like all of a sudden he has these like sound ideas, and then it gets more warped as it goes on. I kind of love that, like this like decay of whatever ethos this is, right? And you'll see it. Ooh. So Adam, my guess it's it's a tie to tap. So knowing that Tap was employing Adam and that Adam made a living out of quote unquote destroying other people's lives instead of living his own because his whole tape was about being a voyeur and living in the shadows and not appreciating his own life. He was too busy taking pictures of other people's lives. But my guess is it was a way to involve Tap, who was the closest to ever getting Jigsaw, Mm. knowing that he was employed by him. But it's also the idea that Adam had the key to his own chains readily available to him the entire time. So was Adam just there to deliver messaging to Gordon and he only really wanted to like punish Gordon? That is interesting, especially because Adam was only given the task to survive. Yeah. But the key went down the drain, right? Yeah, but I don't think that was intended. I think it's because Adam panicked. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That is actually really interesting. In terms of Amanda, she was somebody who struggled with addiction. Mm -hmm. So she was somebody who was not appreciating her life in that capacity. And Allison and Diana were primarily pawns. Unfortunately, this starts a trend that will continue throughout the series of the women and children of men being used as emotional leverage for Jigsaw's games. Women are tested 
Amanda obviously had to kill her cellmate, but women are largely used in moments of martyrdom instead of being tested themselves. There are women that do get tested, but there are multiple instances throughout the film where women are being held in compromising positions to punish the men that are going through the traps, which obviously I think we could talk about at length. That is really interesting. Like, I feel like that would show, like, misogynistic views of John, right? I mean, like, his focus is to punish men and use women and children as leverage. Like, maybe he just doesn't deem women as capable of appreciating their lives as he thinks men should be. And we'll see in that relationship that he does end up having with Amanda, it's very much a Stockholm Syndrome-esque type of relationship Mm -hmm. instead of, like, an apprentice-y type of relationship. Mm -hmm. So that'll be explored in Saws 2 and 3, which we will be covering next. I wanted to talk a little bit on the original Saw's legacy, because obviously knowing that there are sequels that we're going to address, I didn't want to spoil too much. But this comes from the article Saw, the horror movie that kickstarted a uniquely 2000s horror subgenre by Andrew Welsh. And he writes, Today Saw is considered among the best horror films of the 2000s, but at the time of its release, critics didn't have much nice to say about it. Not surprisingly, much of the criticism focused on the extremely graphic, violent set pieces. In the early 2000s, Saw represented a significant departure from the cycle of self-aware meta-horror films that followed the success of Scream, 1996, and its sequels. While Scream reveled in its hip humor and largely bloodless, choreographed violence, Saw was dirty. Quite contrary to Scream, its violence was protracted, graphic, and rendered in realistic detail. Along with Eli Roth's Hostel, 2005, Saw is credited with kickstarting the torture porn or Gorno cycle of horror films. Gorno. Gorno. The term conjures up a number of negative connotations. On one hand, it explicitly draws links between the controversial juxtaposition of graphic violence and sexual imagery. Conversely, the term torture porn alludes to these films' invitation to audiences to revel in the obscene, perverse images of torture. Horror scholars have been more generous in their interpretations of torture porn. To date, a growing body of literature has examined the torture porn trend in the broader sociocultural context of a post-9-11 world. John Towson and Scott Poole have both written about the role of horror in exploring cultural anxieties and fears during the times of what Towson describes as ideological crisis and national trauma. On one hand, serious films that dealt directly with 9-11 and the War on Terror failed to connect with audiences. Filmgoers still grappling with the Abu Ghraib scandal, use of torture and interrogations, and government surveillance weren't ready to see these issues played out in theaters. Yet, the torture porn genre was performing extremely well at the box office. Saul did not uniquely create torture porn as a subgenre. It neither addresses public anxieties with government use of torture nor the xenophobic rhetoric often employed to rationalize its use in the same way that Eli Roth does with Hostel. Nevertheless, Saw arguably paved the way for films like Hostel. That is, when Ellen Wan brought together many of the subgenre's tropes. More specifically, Saw includes the central placement of torture, the role of surveillance, and an eye-for-eye justification of torture. Clearly, film audiences were not interested in more meditative pieces about torture and human rights violations emerging from the War on Terror. Saw illustrated the potential for the horror genre to explore those social and political implications at a subconscious level. 
this might be a dumb question. Do they call it torture? And look, this is like the genre of horror that this is the first movie I feel like we're really scratching the surface with. But do they call it torture porn because it's like people consuming in heavy amounts these people being tortured? Or like later does there start to be a more sexual element to it that I'm not seeing right now at this point? I think it's the idea that the value of these movies is torture. Like, oh, okay. you only want to watch right. that okay. for its violence, okay, that thanks. type of thing. Not necessarily that people find the movie sexual, but more so it's like, oh, it's torture porn. Like, why would you watch that movie? It's just people getting ripped apart and yeah. there's not actual, quote unquote, intelligent elements to it or there's not entertaining elements to it. It's just people being tortured in the sense where it's trying to discredit how smart it is or other elements Mm -hmm. that it's reacting to intelligent themes. Yeah. Also discrediting pornography as well. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I'm thinking about some of our conversations we had with, like, X. Yes. Kind of like... Or Cam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. That is really interesting. I mean, whenever I think of Saw... I do think of it as like a post 9-11 reactionary franchise in the sense where the American public were feeling terrified, had witnessed a shit ton of violence or experienced a shit ton of violence themselves. And the idea that seeing violence could be cathartic or seeing violence could be a safe place for them to feel the fear that they had felt nationally for the past couple years. And Saw was an element that saw like, okay, we're going to make war games, torture, this surveillance aspect, especially this, you do not appreciate what you have. And like, think about how backwards that messaging is. Survivor's guilt, where it's like, you have a life and you should be grateful for it. And if you're not grateful for it, you will be punished. I almost feel like this movie doesn't really justify this kind of torture. It almost seems like in one reading, or in the reading at least I see, it underscores how you can't make that judgment for somebody else. And that's why Jake's also fucked up, because yeah. he wants to play God. Mm-hmm. Because he is dying of cancer, and he's seeing people around him not seeing their life as temporary. Mm. And he's like, I'm so fucking sick of people like you not appreciating their lives, so I'm going to see how far you'll go to live. Mm-hmm. It's fucked up. But he has an ethos of, I want these people to be rehabilitated. And then we have characters like Amanda who become loyal followers of like, yes, I did survive and I love my life now. And you are fixing people. Or like the idea that, of course, Amanda obviously has unprocessed trauma on trauma on trauma on trauma. Right. Like, what would it look like for her to realize that she was manipulated and used by who she thinks is her savior? And there's a lot of things that come later in the sequels that will point that out to her, where people are pointing out, like, he used you, like, that you're not his favorite, like, you're not his protege, all this kind of stuff. It's like when I say Amanda Young is a crazy character, I don't necessarily mean it as in she's like a badass final girl. I think she's a really good antihero in the sense where it's like she has these convictions and she has these things that she believes in and she's a fucking force. But like you can see where she fractures. You can see exactly like how she ends up being manipulated and how she ends up using some of the tenets that John Kramer puts forth and twisting them to her own desires and her own need for vengeance. That's part of the reason I wanted to even open this can of worms is to look at a character that doesn't necessarily win in the end or doesn't necessarily have her moment smoking on the porch waiting for the cops to arrive. But it's more so like what happens when you go down the rabbit hole in the other direction. So even though she plays a small role in this, it's very interesting to see her evolution and how much more powerful she becomes as they go on. 
I did not anticipate being as pumped as I feel. (laughs) This is very cool. I dare say I'm actually, I think, leaning more towards looking forward to watching Saw 2 and 3 as opposed to dreading it. Like I anticipated I would. I knew we'd get you here. Oh my God. I knew we'd get you here. Okay. Wow. So if y'all want to keep up with us, which we hope you want to keep up with us throughout September, definitely follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast. We'll also be posting things there in the near future because spooky season is on the horizon and we have some things planned there too. Also, if you want to get in touch with us with other recommendations or questions or whatever, feel free to also email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.